I have this love-hate relationship with fishing. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, well, let me say this first. One of my life goals is to learn how to fly fish. I'll probably never actually accomplish it because I don't know where you go fly fishing in the desert. But I have this sort of divine mental picture that maybe I stole from uh, A River Runs Through It, if you've ever seen that movie, right? Of sort of being knee-deep in this ice-cold mountain stream, just peacefully out there catching giant-sized rainbow trout in utter tranquility. Like, that, that's what I envision. And the only problem is that, for me at least, the dream and the reality are sort of worlds apart when it comes to fishing. Well, when we were at Hume Lake a couple of weeks ago, uh, I brought the kids' fishing poles. Of course, they're the kids' fishing poles in hopes that maybe I could help them catch some fish, right? So I bought this two-day fishing license. I stuffed their poles in my backpack everywhere we went. I had, like, the bait and tackle in there so that whenever we were walking around and there was water nearby, I could pull the, the fishing poles out and throw, get a couple casts in, right? So we would walk to breakfast over this bridge, and we'd have to stop for a few seconds so I could pull the poles out and throw them in. We drove our car to explore this national park, and we just happened to stop at one point by a swiftly running stream. And so I walked down to the bank and pulled out the fishing pole, and uh, you know, we did a little bit of fishing, see what we could find. And it didn't matter that the pole was a pink Disney princess pole. That <laughs> was really irrelevant. I had a mission to catch some fish, right? Now, I say that I had this love-hate relationship with fishing because fishing for me is a little bit like gambling, okay? I mean... Some of you are like, what? Grady Gambles? No, no, no. I, I just mean the concept is the same, okay? I always just want one more cast, just one more chance. Like, if I had just one more chance, I would catch that big fish. And I always uh, talk about it, I get excited about it, but then I always end up walking away with pretty much nothing. So I try new bait, new lures, new locations, new technique. I try in the morning, I try at night. It doesn't matter. Whatever I do, I just never catch any fish. And what I've concluded is that fish are just smarter than me, I guess. That's pretty much it. So towards the end of my two-day fishing license, uh, reaching its expiration, Aiden asked me if we could go fishing. And I just was like, no, no more fishing. I'm done. I don't want to do fishing anymore. I'm tired of the fruitless toil. I'm tired of untangling fishing line. uh, Because fishing with like three and four-year-olds is really complicated. I don't know if you've ever tried that. I was weary of pulling this slimy algae off all of the lures, and I was tired of my hands stinking like fish bait. Just, I was just done, right? So you can reach this point of exhaustion, even with something that you love to do, where you've labored and labored at this task, and it's been fruitless. And something that started as fun or that started uh, purposeful ends up sort of feeling overwhelmingly tiresome. And I imagine in Luke that that's a little bit what it must have been like for the Apostle Peter. I imagine that he was very much in that place as Jesus sort of gave him this suggestion to toss out his net on the other side of the boat. Let me read just the first five verses for you again. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, so here's Peter. He's in his boat. 
He pulled the graveyard shift last night. He's been fishing all through the night with absolutely nothing to show for it. And the sun's coming up. The heat of the day is starting to get kind of oppressive. It's upon him and his crew. And so they row their boats in, and it's not time to clock out yet. They have to finish one last task before they're done, right? they got to clean up their cargo before they can go home and rest for the next shift. And as he's cleaning the nets, he's folding them up, Jesus comes along and says, Hey, man, I'd like to borrow your boat for a few minutes. And I wonder, I can't help but wondering, if maybe Peter was actually excited that Jesus asked him, not because he was super interested in necessarily hearing what Jesus had to say, but because he could catch a quick little catnap in the back of the boat while being out there, and nobody would really notice that he was sort of dozing off. So they row Jesus out, and Jesus does his teaching. And when he finishes up, Jesus has the audacity to turn to Peter and tell him to cast his nice neatly folded, clean, and prepped nets for the next night out on the other side of the boat into this empty fishless lake, okay? And I imagine Peter thinking to himself, who does this carpenter think that he is? I wouldn't dare walk into his woodworking shop and tell him how to make a table, and yet here he is in my boat telling me how to fish my lake. Who does this guy think he is? But probably grasping his social position below the rabbi Jesus, Peter begrudgingly does what he's asked. And yet he makes this point in there to get a little bit of complaining in. You know, Jesus, man, we've been out here all night and we've caught nothing. The venture was fruitless. I'm tired and I want to go home. But after whining for just a moment, Peter does actually do what he's told and he tosses the net over the other side. Let me read verses 6 through 11 again. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, in these five verses, a man's life becomes indelibly altered. In just five verses, the entire trajectory of Peter's life is forever changed. And Peter begins to see Jesus for who he truly is. And as a result, he gets swept up into this mission for his life that he never dreamed he would find himself caught in. And now we might look at this story and just kind of casually say, cool, Jesus knew where to find the fish. Wow, what a, what a great story. He knew where to find the fish. But Peter's response is, seems kind of blown out of proportion to me. Does it to you at all? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I mean, all it took was a a couple of boats full of fish, and Peter's like on his knees groveling. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And why does Peter react so strongly to this experience? And I think it's because in this moment, Peter realizes that Jesus is his God. What I mean by that, the kingdom of God invades the world of fishermen, and Peter, 
a fisherman sees how God fits firsthand within the sphere of his own life. Okay, no doubt Peter had heard about Jesus. No doubt he had listened to the stories about Jesus traveling around and healing people and preaching. Peter knew things about Jesus, undoubtedly. But in this moment, the reality of Jesus invades the life of Peter in a tangible way. And Jesus reveals himself as the God of boats and fishing nets, the God of the sun and the sea, the God of fish and fishermen, the world in which Peter existed. And in this moment, Jesus becomes personally real to Peter. And see, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but it's a totally different thing to acknowledge him as your Lord, the Lord of your life. And in this moment, Peter wasn't watching Jesus from afar anymore. He wasn't hearing people tell him about Jesus. Jesus had personally come and invaded his life with the reality of the lordship of Christ. And Peter is blown away. Now, Peter does two things in response to this realization. They happen simultaneously, but I want to tackle them in a particular order. First, notice Peter does actually acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. When, Jesus, or when Peter first talks to Jesus, he calls him master, but now he calls him Lord. He calls Jesus Lord and even points to this incredible chasm between Peter and Jesus. He says, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to have you in my boat. I'm not worthy to even be close to you. And that seems like an appropriate response. When Jesus bursts into your life in an undeniable way, the right response is to be amazed and acknowledge his lordship. But notice the one other thing that Peter says, depart from me. Jesus, depart from me. And I don't think Peter says this because he's all that concerned about Jesus, okay? I mean, I don't think Peter's primary concern here is that by being near him, Jesus is somehow going to soil his perfect reputation and end up corrupted by Peter. Peter's not concerned about Jesus. I think Peter is trying to do uh, what lots of Christians sometimes try and do, which is keep Jesus at an arm's distance. Peter has just had his personal space, his familiar world invaded by the weighty reality of the incarnate God, the one who created water and fish and men capable of making boats through their own human ingenuity. And Peter, as a result, is freaked out. And his response, Jesus, get away from me. Jesus, you're a little too close here and it's making me uncomfortable. You're in my personal bubble, and when you get this close to me, it makes me feel like I'm not in charge of my life anymore, like somebody else is in authority. And so, Jesus, why don't you step back a little bit, go back over there where I can just keep admiring you from a distance and stay safe without really putting my neck on the line in this intimate relationship with you. Now, I think Peter is kind of an easy bloke to make fun of time to, from time to time when we read about him in Scripture. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read about Peter, I just can't help but laugh. But the truth is that, again, in a lot of ways, Peter is just like the average everyday Christian. Maybe he's a little bit like you or a little bit like me. Especially here, where we see in Peter the behavior that so many of us are guilty of from time to time. We want Jesus 
But in truth, we want him to stay over there a little bit where he's nice and safe. We want Jesus, but we want him to stay at kind of a nice, comfortable distance from us. Because we know that if Jesus gets too close to our real life, then he's going to mess everything up. He's just going to mess it all up. He's going to turn it upside down. He's going, to, he's going to work over our plans. If he breaks out of the boundaries of Sunday morning and he actually invades our real life, our home, our career, our hobbies, our thoughts, our marriages, our friendships, the deep places of our heart, if he really steps into that world that we know and we live in, then he's going to mess it all up and it won't be safe and it won't be comfortable anymore. And I don't know, maybe this isn't the case at our church. I I guess I don't entirely know. I probably need to ask some better questions in relationship with some of you. But I could definitely point to churches around the valley and churches around our country where all kinds of people love to keep Jesus at church, at a nice, comfortable, safe distance where he won't come and mess things up. And I don't know, maybe, maybe we do that too. And the simple truth is that Peter's fears are totally justified. In fact, Jesus even promises to mess up Peter's life. In verse 10, the first thing that he says to Peter is, Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter, I can see how scared you are now that the kingdom of God has invaded your world and is taking it over. I can see how uncomfortable it makes you to have the reality of God come into your life and shatter your nice, neat, cozy little reality. But don't be afraid, Peter. I'm going to mess this whole thing up for you, Peter, but you're actually going to end up loving it. And don't worry, I've got everything under control. And you're going to die to yourself, Peter, but you're going to be raised to new life. And there's no adventure quite like the adventure that I'm about to take you on. And Peter, if you think fishing is a fulfilling role for your life. I'm going to turn your whole world upside down and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And I think that Peter was attracted to this invitation even though he was terrified by it. And actually, I know that Peter was attracted to the invitation because what did he do at the end of the story? He leaves his boat and his nets and his livelihood and the world that he knows and he leaves it behind like it was no big deal. Now, I think there's a couple reasons why Peter felt so compelled to follow Jesus. And the first one is, Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. And Peter knew in just that phrase, that sentence, that if he followed Jesus, that Jesus would be capable and competent to work out all of the finer details. Right? Peter didn't get out of the boat and say, yeah, Jesus, give me like four hours. I just need to make some preparations for all my stuff here because it's really important to me. No, 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 Peter follows Jesus, trusting that Jesus will work out the details. But he could hear in the words, do not be afraid, that Jesus was a trustworthy guy who would make things work out even if Peter couldn't see the specifics. But I think the other thing here, this absolutely terrifying idea of Jesus invading the life of Peter was intriguing to Peter. It was captivating. It was enticing Peter couldn't help but be attracted to it. An invitation to a bigger story. An invitation to an incredible adventure. An invitation to an eternal purpose for his life. You know, maybe sort of like me fishing with no results had kind of worn Peter out 
And he was ready for something a little bit more exciting. I think to Peter, this may have felt a little bit like, the, like visiting the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've had kind of an, exper- uh, an experience like this. When you first see the Grand Canyon, you kind of see it from afar. And you can, you can tell that it's there, but you can't see much of the details. And you can tell it's stunning, but you're not to the edge, right? There's a lot of ground between you and this massive chasm. But your curiosity, your desire to see more draws you closer to the edge. It's not satisfying enough to see it from a distance. You don't want to see the Grand Canyon as something just far away. You want the adventure of seeing it up close. And even though you may be terrified of heights, you're sort of drawn to the edge. And so you get closer and closer, and it fills more and more of your vision. But still, that's not quite enough. You can't help yourself. And even though the distance to the bottom is terrifying to you, the size of it is almost too much to take in, you have to get right up to the edge right up to that little wall so you can even just kind of peer over and look straight down. You can't help it. You have this overwhelming need to see the sheer cliff face for yourself. And I think for Peter, it was a little bit like that. Jesus had burst into his world and Peter felt compelled, drawn all the way to the very edge to see it for himself, to find out just how great this vista might be if he chose to follow Jesus. And at first, he wanted Jesus to stay away from him at a nice, safe distance where Peter could stay in control. But once he heard Jesus' reassuring words, once he really believed Jesus in his heart that it would be okay, that everything was under the sovereign care of Christ, then Peter wanted him close, dangerously close. He kind of actually wanted Jesus to mess everything up to see where Jesus would take him and how the adventure would play itself out. Okay, so let's try and apply Peter's experience to our lives for just a moment here. If I were to ask you, what's the purpose of the church? How would you answer that question? If we were to sit down and I were to say to you, what do you think the purpose of the church is? Consider that question for just a moment. Why did Jesus leave behind the institution of the church when he ascended to be with God the Father in heaven? And I think there's lots of potential answers to that question, lots of valid answers to that question. Some people might say Jesus left the church to take care of Christians. Others might say Jesus left the church to build the Christian community. Still others might say he left the church for worship, for his glory, for the glory of God. Some people might even say to create a safe place to get away from the evil and idolatrous world. But honestly, I hope that none of you would say that last thing. And here's why. Because Peter began to learn on the shores of the Lake Gennesaret that Jesus was building his church to catch fish. And here's the very first lesson that Jesus taught to Peter. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter, follow me, and here's the first thing that I want you to know. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Follow me, and I'm going to teach you to save lost people. Do you know what the last lesson Jesus gave to Peter was? After Jesus died, Peter and his disciples, they were huddled together in a back alley room, terrified, afraid for their lives, the doors locked, and they're huddled together praying to stay safe. 
And they did everything that they could after Jesus was crucified to stay out of harm's way, to stay close to each other and and away from the world that was trying to get them. And Jesus shows up to them in the midst of that room with the locked door. And he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can go out into the world and finish the job of fishing for men. Luke ends with Jesus telling his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And so it bookends Peter's experience with Jesus. And you need to understand that the primary function of the church is to tell lost people about Jesus. That's the primary function of the church, to proclaim the grace of God, that God has offered forgiveness of sins to all who repent in trust in Jesus, and to make non-believers into disciples. And you need to understand, like Peter, that to follow Jesus means that you become a fisher of men. That's your calling. And there's no safe distance at which you can hold off Jesus If he is your Lord and Savior, then he's going to mess up your nice, neat little plans for your life so that he can send you out to fish for lost people. And Peter's application, I think, is our application. Follow Jesus, and he's going to call you to seek and save the lost. Now, within the church, we experience community. We give God glory. We give him worship. But the primary purpose of the church is to save lost people and make them into disciples. And yes, again, that happens in the context of worship. That happens so God receives glory. It happens in wonderful community. But God sees that the world is perishing in sin. And he wants you and me out there fishing for men, telling people about his grace. And the function of the church is to seek and save the lost to bring them into the family of Christ, to teach them obedience to the way of Jesus so that they might go out and seek and save more lost people. And all of this is done because the God of Christianity is worthy of all worship and glory and praise and honor. And so here's the question for you. When was the last time that you actually shared your faith with someone and led them to Jesus? When was the last time? As I was writing that question, I found myself convicted because for me, the last time was a couple of weeks ago. And the last time before that was a couple of months ago. And so look, the lake is full of fish. That's the simple truth. The lake is full of fish. And Jesus knows where to find them. He's hunting them down. But it's up to us to put down the nets. We have to put down the nets in obedience to Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to beat you up about this, okay? What I really want you to see from this story is Jesus knows where the fish are, and he's going to bring them to us if we'll trust and obey him. So yeah, share your faith. If you've never done that before, give it a try. But some of you never have, and so you're scared to death. Where do I even start? I don't even know. Can the church offer a class on that first? Well, what if we just started with this, a simpler place than even that? What if we began to pray as individuals together in community, as a church, on a daily basis? Jesus, give me one chance to go fishing this week. Give me just one 
chance and make it so clear that I can't miss it, Jesus. Give me one chance, one opportunity this week to just share the story about what God has done in my life through Jesus with someone. And Jesus will take care of the outcome. He's got that covered. The question for us is, are we willing to toss our nets overboard in obedience? And I mean, seriously, how hard would it be for us to pray that prayer each day and then look for those opportunities each week simply to tell a person what Jesus has done in my life to change me, how different I am because of my closeness to him. And honestly, if there's only one thing that I could get you to walk away with this morning, it would be this, just a commitment to pray regularly, that God would give you opportunities to share Jesus with people, and that you would take advantage of those opportunities when God answers your prayers and gives them to you. Let me close with this, and and I hope it will encourage us as we try to be a church on this mission together. Jesus says in Luke 10 that the harvest is plentiful. Did you hear that? The harvest is plentiful. When it comes to the mission that we're on together, we're in essence guaranteed success. Guaranteed. There is an abundance of crops. I struggle with that because like, I read the news and I'm like, this is a godless world and nobody cares. That's how I feel. But Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The, the lake is overwhelmingly full of fish. The problem is not that the world is godless and unbelieving. The problem is there are not enough workers doing the labor of harvesting. There's not enough of us to bring the crops in. The lake is full of fish. There just are not enough fishermen doing the job. Unbelievable. And how is that for a paradigm shift? The problem, again, in the world today is not that people are not interested in having a relationship with Jesus. The problem is that too many Christians aren't sharing their faith, sincerely. Too many Christians, we, we call ourselves Christ followers, but we want him to stay there, over there, where it's safe and comfortable, where we can keep him under control, where he won't mess things up too much. But the world is perishing And Jesus wants to send us out into the world to do his work of saving people. Okay, now here's what you really need to understand. Jesus doesn't actually need you to do this. He doesn't need you at all. But he has invited you to be part of it. Just before we left for Hume Lake, uh, I took our minivan to the car wash to vacuum and clean it out. And I decided to take my five-year-old son Aiden along with me. And he didn't know this, but I did not need his help, okay? In fact, taking him along actually made my job harder because he kept getting in the way of the places that I was trying to vacuum. He slowed me down. I could have done the job way more quickly without him. But I wanted him to come along with me because I knew that he would enjoy it, because I knew that I would enjoy having him there, and I knew that it would be good for him. Jesus didn't need Peter to be a fisher of men. He could have done that without him, but Jesus wanted Peter to be a fisher of men. And so the simple truth is, you can neglect the mission of the church, the mission of Christianity, if you want to. You have that option, actually. You're not saved by meeting some quota of evangelism, and thank God for that. 
okay? You're not saved by that. You're saved by faith in Jesus, and that's all that it takes. But Jesus wants you to follow him on this adventure. He wants you to see the joy of sitting across the table from someone when someone says, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus. That sounds, that sounds like it would bring a lot of healing. That sounds like it would set me free. That sounds like it would bring me this joy that I've been looking for. He wants you to have that experience. He wants you to know the assurance of his promise that you don't have to be afraid. He wants you to feel the excitement of telling someone about Christ and seeing them come to know him and get baptized. He wants you to grow and trust him, to be close to him in this labor of working in the harvest fields. Again, Jesus, he doesn't need you for the mission, but he desperately wants you on the mission. On the day that I got married, it was, you know, obviously one of the highlights of my life. The sky was this perfect blue. It was just beginning to be fall in the Midwest, and we got married at this amazing arboretum, a tree garden. And our wedding was outside. It could not have been more perfect. The weather, the sky, early September... And I remember standing up on these steps, much like these behind me, outside, grassy and beautiful, with my groomsmen behind me and the bridesmaids just having filled the spot to my right, with a huge crowd of attendees, more people at my wedding, I think, than are here this morning, all staring up at me, sharing in my joy. And the sun was just beginning to set right on the edge of the horizon, shining and shimmering through the leaves of these trees. And as I stood there, the the music for the processional came to an end. And there was Leanne, my beautiful bride, at the end of the aisle, standing there, slowly making her way towards me as Pachelbel's Canon in G played, one of the most beautiful songs, I think. And I didn't even know that this was possible until this moment, but I welled up with both smiles of laughter and tears of joy at the same time. I didn't know you could do that. And the sun was shining on Leanne's wedding dress, making her whole outline glow in this gold color. I wish that I could give you the picture in my mind because it's absolutely gorgeous. And I was so happy, I was so happy to have my bride for the culmination of this successive moments that I was finally experiencing, this wonderful union of lives that I had waited so eagerly for. And my heart was just full of rejoicing. Isaiah 62.5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And God rejoices over his church and his people more than we will ever know. If you think you're going to be dancing when you get to heaven, just wait till you see the dancing Jesus does when you run to his arms. And what a glorious thought to know that our God longs for us. He rejoices over us like a groom rejoices over his bride. But hundreds of people that you know and I know, hundreds of people at least, have never actually been given the invitation to come and be the bride of Christ. They don't know about this joy because we have never told them. And yet the primary function of the church is to make worshipers of Jesus out of lost and rebellious sinners so that the nets of the kingdom of God are full to bursting. 
And may the mission of our church and the mission of our lives be God's mission to seek and save the lost. Let me pray. God, would you help us on this mission? The truth is we're not very articulate with our words. We're insecure about how well we know the Bible. We're afraid to screw it up and say something stupid. We don't know the exact verse that we should turn our Bibles to to tell people. We're scared about the fact that they might reject us. We're afraid that we might misrepresent you. We're afraid for the way the relationship might change as a result. God, the truth is we're scared. But would you help us be on this mission, not because you need us, but because you know the joy of being on this mission and you want us to share in that joy. So God, I pray for the people in this room first that you would give them a conviction to pray and ask you to open doors for them to share their faith. Second, I pray that you would do that this week, that you would make us each aware of an opportunity where we can just tell somebody about how much you mean to us, how wonderful it is to be your bride. And God, third, I pray that you would give us success. The promise is the harvest is plentiful. And so as we go forth as workers, God, would you save people through the work that we're doing? We ask you to do these things. And God, we thank you for the invitation to be on this mission. We thank you that you rejoice over us like a groom rejoices over his bride. We worship you for that. Amen.